0: hello and welcome thanks so much for joining us today on the celeste stein show i'm your host dr celeste stein and i hope you will be sure to go and follow us on our official linkedin youtube facebook instagram and twitter pages we certainly appreciate it you can also reach us on our website at bsaprinc.com that's for bishop stein and associates public relations Um, We have had that company 23 years, and if you're in need of public relations services, please feel free to reach out and reach us on the website, again, at www.bsaprinc.com. Now, although my next guest really doesn't need much of an introduction, I am definitely going to give him his props, especially for the younger generations who might not have had the chance to witness one of the most memorable Super Bowl plays in US history. Today, Dr. Kevin Dyson, and that's right, I did say Dr. Dyson, is yeah. here to join us to talk about football, life after football, and what lies ahead. Dr. Dyson, thanks for joining us.
1: I appreciate, I appreciate that introduction.
0: Alright, It gotta give you your props, you know, I, I went through it too and it is nothing to play with, is it?
1: <laughs> no, 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 you know Yeah, um, people,
0: people people, don't know, do they? <laughs> no, foot,
1: football, athletics you know, training your body to do something athletically um, that's one thing, but training your body I mean, your mind mentally to do something completely against what you thought you were capable of is something right. else um, Right, th- but I learned as I got older, your only limitations are yourself and what you think you're capable of. You can do anything just about you put your mind forth, too. And, you know, fortunately, I, I learned that after playing ball, even though I achieved a high level of success playing football.
0: Yeah, I know. Uh, personally, I used to lock myself away in the basement for, you know, hours on end yeah. uh, writing. And, you know, you have to really focus. I mean, it's it's one thing, like I said, to do. Uh, sports and what have you, it's another to really engage in that mental uh, playground that is necessary to accomplish great things, uh, getting your doctorate. So hats off to you there. One thing I want to say, you know, for those who don't know, Dr. Dyson is a former wide receiver and first-round pick in the 1998 NFL Draft, and he played six NFL seasons by the then Oilers, now the Tennessee Titans, and the Carolina Panthers. But today, you can definitely find him at the head of the class as he serves as the principal at Centennial High School in Franklin, Tennessee. And so I know that your name is certainly synonymous with two of the most memorable plays in National Football League history, the 2000 wild Card playoff game against the Buffalo Bills and Super Bowl 34 versus the St. Louis Rams, dubbed the Music City Miracle and yeah. One Yard Short, respectfully, are <laughs> definitely games that have hitched you into National Football League history. And before we get into that, though, Tell me about, uh, I kind of want to backtrack a little bit first, mm-hmm. and I wanted you to tell me a little bit about your childhood and how you actually became interested in football and actually becoming a pro athlete.
1: Oh, I'll start there. I, um, I wanted to be a professional basketball player. That was my favorite sport. Uh, when I was uh, in the sixth grade, uh, I came home and I told my mom I was going to the NBA and I was going to buy our house. Um, raised by a single mother primarily, uh, we did go back and forth between Vegas and Utah. My dad from Las Vegas, my mother from Utah, um, but my mom was pretty much our primary caretaker. And um, I, that was the ultimate dream to me was to be able to buy us a house. Um, we eventually got a house, you know, in my mid-teen years uh, through high school um, that I you know, graduate from, and then eventually my mom moved and I got to college. But then I ended up living my dream out and buying her house. But ultimately, I uh, wanted to be a professional basketball player. And the next day, and it's funny, I finally, I just asked my mom this about a year ago where she got this from, but, and this was before the internet. Um, after I told her I was going to go pro and buy her house, she came home with this, this the statistical probabilities of making it in each of the major league sports in america and at that time those numbers were astronomical we're talking one in a million one in two million i mean it was like less than one percent right and it was one of those things one percent less than one percent one percent and i just remember looking at that she put it on the fridge and like wow that's the odds are really against you and Mm -hmm. but it didn't necessarily deter my dream and i know now as i'm as an adult what she was trying to convey was the importance of getting your education, um, being able to provide for your family, whatever that dynamic looks like, and things of that nature. She wasn't necessarily saying, don't shoot for your dream, but you also have to be prepared for if that dream doesn't work. And so that, that year, uh, right the first semester ended, and I had like a one point something GPA in school. And my mom's rule was you had to have a, a B average or better, so about a 3.0 or better to play sports. And I came home. I'm the oldest of four, and I had that GPA. was real low, and she took basketball away. And I I, I literally would begged her for the whole Christmas break, I just crying, pleading, like, how am I going to buy you this house if I'm not playing ball? Like, you know, just everything to try to appeal to her, compassionate side, empathetic side of, of me trying to chase my dream at 11, 12 years old to buy her house. And I thought she was taking that dream away. But what I know now is she wanted one, I had my little brother sisters behind me. Uh, two, she wanted to make sure I understand the importance of doing what I need to do in a classroom. Although I did just enough to get that B average and I have some regrets in that sense, which has led me to where I'm at now. But, um, and it ultimately, it taught me valuable lessons. I finally convinced her to let me play, but it wasn't without some, some bargaining. Um, I was progress monitored that second semester. Anytime my grades dipped below a B, I was going to have to give up playing ball, um, which I didn't. I never got below 3.0 again. Um, and, uh, and it was just one of those things where it was a lesson I had to learn the hard way. And my brother's sisters got to see me, you know, crying cause I couldn't play basketball. And my mom was ruthless in a lot of respect. She, I still went to practice. I still went to the games, but I couldn't play. And she that mm. made me watch there and suffer through it. And there you talk about motivation. And um, so all that to say, yeah, basketball was my dream. Football just kind of happened. I got into high school, wasn't planning on playing football. I was like, I'm I'm real scrawny, little skinny kid. When I got to high school, I didn't want to get hurt cause I love basketball. Uh, one of my coaches he had to be one of my teachers he knew me from the junior high he had moved from the junior high to the high school he knew what kind of athlete I was he just kept talking to me just come on out if you don't like it I won't bother you again just just come on out I had I went out there the first week couple days of practice played in the game had a pretty pretty good day if you will and I've been playing football ever since and still didn't take away my love for basketball. I just, okay, I'll do football till basketball comes around. So I would do football from June, July until November, December. And then basketball, I did basketball up until we went back to football camp. It was, basketball was my thing. And that coach, man, I've Craig Hanson, I've, I've thanked him a long ways because I was about to limit myself and my potential if I just focused in on one thing. And you just don't know how things are going to transpire, how you're going to develop and that yeah. that conversation or those conversations there's more than one of uh, convincing me to come out and play with my peers has it led me to the opportunity to get the college scholarship which we didn't have the money if I didn't get a scholarship I don't know how what we the college we have probably did some financial aid and things of that nature and had to do some research on that kind of stuff but my number one goal is get the scholarship and uh, I was having success in football we won state championship and I had coaches calling and it was I can wait to basketball season or get the scholarship now in football. Still play basketball in college, play both, and and then I can ease that burden off of me because I I wanted the scholarship, and that's kind of ultimately how I ended up playing football. I wanted I had the offers right there. I want to make sure I was getting a school opportunity to get my my uh, degree, and I I got that first with in the back of my mind thinking. I can do both if I get there, I could just like I did in high school. And that's yeah. how I ended up being a football player. Uh, I played both my freshman year, scrawny kid. And then I realized after a while, I wasn't getting no playing time or anything like that. I was still real skinny. I was like, man, I probably need to invest on why I'm here. I got the scholarship football. So I got in the weight room, lifted, and hopefully, I, I mean, eventually, I developed into a football player and gained some muscle and And then, you know, 1998, I was drafted.
0: Well, it sounds like your mother was a real tough lady. However, she (laughs) seems like one of the biggest influences on on your life. And it was good. It takes that tough love, you know, sometimes, I guess, to get us where we need to go. And you also mentioned your coach. Uh, Were there any others that really, you know, helped you along the way in terms of being a mentor to you?
1: Yeah, you know um and it's something I, I i try to emulate even now what i do because you just don't know the kind of impact somebody's going to have on your life you just don't know and i and i think about especially when my father was a uh, state away and he wasn't around as much um i think about some of the the coaches and mentors that saw stuff in me uh donny greenfield uh randy johnson craig Hanson. Um, just guys that coaches that were influential and trusted in me and leadership and to lead, the team, giving me that freedom, that flexibility, having, having the ability. It's a lot of people like that. And there's a lot of people, families that, um, cause we couldn't afford for me to go play travel soccer. And I was one of the better players on a soccer team. And if, if I was going to be able to go, people had to take me in. So there's a lot of families that, would let me stay with them and let me travel with them and would feed me so I can go to Denver and Idaho and Mexico and all these different places to play travel soccer and same thing with basketball. Kel- Kelvin Davis, another man, gentleman who paid for my AU and just people that really saw something in me and knew our limitations financially, especially and helped my mother along the way, um, so I could be out there and and compete and. I don't, I'm, I'm kind of a rule follower. I wouldn't think I would have been out there doing something devastating to my life, like criminal or anything like that. But sport definitely keeps you in line in a lot of respects. You know, you definitely stay busy. You don't have a lot of idle time. I was from one practice to another, from one tournament to another. And that was ultimately how I developed some of the competitiveness and things that I have now. And, if I wasn't given those opportunities by a lot of people who just saw something in me, I don't know. I don't know if I would have made it to the pros. I don't know. I, I mean, talent-wise, I think I was there. But also, you hone in on your talents by doing those things. You're playing against people all over across the country and, and across the state. And, and that's how you get better and develop some of those skills. So who knows where I would have been if it wasn't for a lot of people just investing in, in me because they saw something.
0: Yeah, that is so important. Uh, for you know the people around you to realize how much their influence, uh, can can be on a young person, and you know that's why it's so important to speak uh, positively. But also, I think making sure that when that tough love is needed, that you jump in and you don't just give, uh. A child anything they want. I mean, yeah. they're gonna try to definitely take it, especially you know. I, I know you're a principal now. I've been <laughs> an educator for many years as well, and so I, I, you know, I had to get tough with those cell phones. And uh, you know, mm-hmm. we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, classroom and and those type of things. Uh, but first, we're gonna take a quick break, and, and when we come back, we're we're gonna hit that topic, and we're also gonna talk a little bit about um the things that you say to your, your students now that the roles have reversed. Yeah. We'll be back in just a moment. A lot of things have come to a screeching halt due to COVID-19, but you should know that the court system in Tennessee is still open and holding in-person hearings for orders of protection and other types of abuse cases. If you have a hearing date, double check on where your hearing will be held. If you need assistance on an order of protection or temporary restraining order, contact the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443 or visit our website at www.las.org. And welcome back. I'm your host, Dr. Celeste Stein, and we're talking to Dr. Kevin Dyson today, formerly of the NFL, Tennessee Titans, North Carolina Panthers. And we're talking uh, you know, a lot about the trajectory right now of his his career from pro athlete to educator. And I yeah. wanted to ask you, now that you have the opportunity. Uh, Dr. Kev, to actually speak to our young people, what is it that you tell them when it comes to being a student and an athlete?
1: Ooh. Oh, man, we can do this, the show just on this. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because, because, you know, and I, I've been fortunate enough um, to be on both ends of this. and And I also understand I was that kid where my priorities were misled misguided you know i you know I, I i wanted to be a professional athlete and that was i put a lot of of my stuff in that proverbial professional athlete bucket like i i'd go play basketball every day or go lift or run and i'd go to the track on Saturdays when i should have been reading um i didn't read a whole lot i sh- cuz i barely i got just enough on my ACT to get me into school i got my 18 and that was it and it wasn't now that I recognized I had the ability from an intellectual standpoint, from an academic standpoint, in academia. I, I learned that later, the same energy, motivation, prioritizing, um, attrition, all those things that I had in me as an athlete, I invested that in my education when I turned got in my 40s. And I'm like, oh, I've always had this, this ability. I just never directed it in that sense. And so... I, I try to tell kids it's okay to you got one, you gotta be balanced, you know. Um, you can't just all be all in one way or the other. You know, even some of my kids that kids that have four or five AP classes, they're wearing themselves out because it's all academic. And I'm like, you ain't got one one time to be a kid, and you gotta enjoy this time, enjoy this experience. And it goes by fast. And I try to tell them, get involved as much as you can to school, especially seniors. Do everything, go to every dance, go to every game, go to every event, be a part of the school because it's never like this again. And this restarted, we just started school and we finished the first week. And before you know it, you're going to be in your last week of your senior year and you're going to look back like, man, I was just a freshman and we all go through it. We all have done it. We all had looked back and like, man, where did the time go? But you hear those, my mom used to tell me this. I've had other people tell me this enjoy the moment, enjoy where you're at now. But you're always looking forward to that next thing. Oh, I can't wait to be 18. I can't wait to be 21. I can't wait to do this. I can't wait to graduate college. And then before you know it, you're adulting and you had, you missed your whole quote unquote childhood. And my mom would tell me, Kevin, be a kid. I didn't understand what she was saying. I'm like, mom, you're by yourself. I'm the oldest. I got to do this. I started working at 12, 13 years old. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and she would tell me, be a kid, enjoy being a kid. And now I tell my own kids the same thing because I understand what she meant was you got a long time to be an adult. God willing, you have a long time to be an adult. You got a short window to be a kid. And so that's one of the biggest things I tell kids is one, you got to have balance in your life. But two, you got to enjoy this time that you have. Don't grow up too fast because you're going to have a long time to be grown. And don't get me wrong, some of the best times in your life are those times after high school, college is fun. You know, when you get out of college, you're trying to figure out life that can be fun. But before you know it, it has to end at some point, you got to have something that holds you accountable. And some, some is family and kids, some is the job, but it's something that you got to find your passions along the way. and, And that will hold you accountable. But the biggest thing I can tell anybody, whether they be 12, 13 or 50 something or 60 something is, is I'm trying to do better myself is, is enjoy the now and mm. don't, don't wait, don't invest for tomorrow. Enjoy today. And I'm, you know, I've tried to do better with that. Try to, if I find myself getting sleepy and not spending time with my kids, I, sometimes I feel guilty about that with my own self beat myself up and you know, and I got to relieve, relieve myself of that and understand there's going to be days like that, but trying to do better with enjoying the now and appreciating the now and not looking forward to, Oh, tomorrow I got to do this or next week, this is due or next month I'm going on this trip and just focus in on enjoying today. And I'm trying to do better with that. Um, I I have found myself of recent being really conscientious of like, if I find myself like thinking about tomorrow, tomorrow's tomorrow. I don't even know if it's it's not promised to me. So I don't know what's going to happen, but just go ahead and, and enjoy where I'm at to now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, um, you know, especially with um, social media and our cell phones, um, I noticed so many people are always looking down mm-hmm. and, and like, are we missing half our lives now? Because we're not living in the, now we're living in social media, you know, yes. and, and that's a hard thing, you know, and it's something that, you know, as I started studying media ecology a little bit more, that's what I was kind of studying in school, I realized the damage that can do in terms of not engaging in where you are and even like, if you look around when you go stay to the beach. I mean, it's it's like a beautiful place and there's much to see around you. But if you look around, you'll see that half the people are on their cell phones. Yeah. In as hot as it is and as bright as the sun is, they're out there, you know, just constantly looking down <laughs> at that cell phone. And yeah. so, wow, that's, you know, that's really a revelation that I think a lot of people need to really take the time to engage in what is going on in the here and the now. Um, One thing, uh, as you were talking, I was also wondering if you, if when you were actually playing football during that time, did you really ever think about what you were going to do, you know, after football?
1: Uh, Great question. I appreciate that one. I don't know how many people have even asked me that. Uh, They've asked me, Mm -hmm. the, the, the typical question has been, um, Are you, did you always be in, wanted to be in education? Not necessarily. What were my thoughts as I was playing? And um, I like to believe I was always thinking, um, being prepared for what's next in a a sense of I knew football wasn't going to last for long. I mean, the the joke is NFL actually stands for not for long. That's the joke that everybody says in league. And we all know it. Even if you last 10 years, for most people, that's still early thirties, right? If you, if you're fortunate enough to play for 10 years, you're still pretty young. Um, and so, um, but a lot of people see, oh, you have money, you have nothing to do after that. You can just do whatever. And I've heard that statement over and over again. I was first round pick. Like, why are you doing this? And things of that nature. So going back to your question, uh, I, I, I was not prepared for life after football in the sense that I didn't have a plan. I was just I need to play, make as much money as I can. And I'll figure that out later. Whereas as I've grown and learned and I have my own podcast and I've talked to several former athletes, professional football players at that, and how they prepare themselves for life after the football, just stuff on from a, uh, a li- limit to liability, um, their insurance policies, stuff that's generating income for them after they're playing ball. So they could do whatever they wanted because they already had a source of income beyond the NFL paychecks whereas I was taking it as I uh, getting this money and I was paying bills save pay bills save as opposed to pay my bills invest cuz that ends up being the savings and then you have this these nest eggs these entrepreneurial businesses and things of that nature where I could have been generating generational wealth compared to like, oh, I'm saving, which I'm good. I saved, you know, I kept it all, but I wasn't necessarily understanding, gaining and learning and investment and building that wealth. Um, and so at that time as a kid, it was just acquire the money and save. And I figured that out when I'm done playing. Well, then my career ended through the injuries and and lack of opportunities coming my way because people think I caught And so I was 30 years old when I when I retired. And that's a young age. I'm 30. And so I started trying to figure some things out. And if I can go back and tell my 22, 23 year old self, I would look into different opportunities to build businesses or companies or something to what I would want to do at that time, whatever would have been. And that would have helped propel me a little further. But I also say this too: everything has for a reason. I don't know if I would have done all those things if I would have become the man that I am today. I don't know if I would have went back to school and got two master's degrees and a doctorate and become Dr. Kevin Dyson. I don't know. And truth be told, that's one of my pr- proudest accomplishments that I have is I did that. That was all me. I went back, I wrote I wrote a dissertation and became Dr. Kevin Dyson. Like That, to me, was one of my proudest moments. And I can't say that if I would have done all those things and I would have set myself up from an entrepreneurial standpoint and a business standpoint financially and things of that nature where i was already having xyz dollars coming in if i would have took the initiative and had the motivation to do that and i may not even be here speaking as an educator if i had done those things so everything happens for a reason but go back to your question no i didn't necessarily have a quote-unquote plan i just knew I was going to make as much money as I can and save as much money as I could for when my time was up. And that was kind of my plan, if you will.
0: Right. Well, you think about it, only one point six five percent of the population actually has a Ph.D., right? So, I mean, just the fact that you did that, I know you're way ahead of most of your counterparts you know yeah and they've never even thought about it you know and yeah. most people won't most people don't so well, that's and i tell really people
1: i'm sorry and i confidence. tell people i'm of one percent on both athletics and academia so you mm-hmm. know so that in itself is a feat and and this is a whole other conversation but I, that's kind of what i'm focusing in on the book that i'm writing is you know being of one percent or two percent whatever you really but i say one percent on both ends of it and the uniqueness of that. I'm you know, I was a first round draft pick, which is less than one percent of the population, let alone being drafted, on top of getting my doctorate, which is of like you said, there's only one percent of people that have that distinction. So you know, it's something that I'm very humbled by and appreciative of. And, you know, you mentioned my mom earlier and her influence. I just man, it was one of those things. I I still forty something years old wanted to make her proud. And she told me and she told me she was proud of me. She was like, Man, we've got a doctor, you know, in our in our family. So it's just You know, again, the same similar motivations I had as a kid were some of the same motivations I had as an adult.
0: Right. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people don't really uh, think about all that hard work. You know, they see the athlete and they see the accolades and, oh, Mm -hmm. they make all this money, but they have to realize that you know, that money is is uh, in the here and now, as we were talking about, it's it's right then. And then, you know, you have to really be thinking, well, what about after that? Because yeah. a lot of uh, young people, they may even make it in, but then, you know, their injuries, as you, you mentioned, and things like that. So yeah. you do have to be wise um, with that and realizing that, maybe you should have some sort of a succession plan, but also um, I just even thinking about everyday people and everyday life. I know that um, I know I was a news reporter, you know, for many years for ABC and uh, I was, I was at at one point working in a little small market in a little small town in Lynchburg, Virginia. And um, I remember doing a series actually on retirement And Mm -hmm. that's something I had never really thought about, you know, obviously as a young person, you don't, you don't think about, oh, one day I might retire. And it was just amazing. It was eye-opening to find out how many people don't really plan for retirement. Mm -hmm. So even if you have a lot of money, even if you've had a lot of success, people, just because you have money doesn't mean you'll have something to do, you know what I mean? Like yep. you have to really be thinking about what do I, who am I? What do I like to do? Do I want to paint? Do I want to, you yes. know, go work, right? what do you want to do? You know? So that's the thing, you know, uh, what do they say? More money, more problems. you got, you've got to also think about those type of things, you know, and do a better job. A lot of people I think need to do a lot of, uh, yep. better at planning overall. Um, hmm. I want to take one more break. Um, I know uh, we have just a, a few more minutes uh, to, to talk and I wanted to take a quick break. And then when we come back, um, I want to talk about uh, the downside of, uh, you know, being uh, irresponsible as a, an athlete or an entertainer and what, what can happen in those circumstances. We're going to talk about that when we get back in just a moment when it comes to relationships there are some obvious signs you can use to spot someone who might be abusive first they have a tendency to want to rush into a relationship they may also show signs of jealousy and mistrust and you could find they expect you to be perfect and will try to cut you off from other important relationships. They could also be abusive towards animals and children. To learn more about the signs of dangerous individuals and how you can identify and avoid unhealthy relationships, contact the Legal Aid Society at one eight hundred two three eight fourteen forty three. 238 1443 And welcome back. Uh, I'm here with Dr. Kevin Dyson. As mentioned, you played for the Tennessee Titans that eventually ended up in the Super Bowl in 2000. And the Titans had the best record in franchise history during 1999 and 2000 seasons. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that infamous play (laughs) that we referenced earlier that is still talked about, you know, to this day, the Music City Miracle, where the Titans were the Buffalo Bills on January 8th in 2000 with 16 seconds remaining in the game. The score was 16 to 15 and the Bills were up. And now the Titans are ready to receive the kickoff. Give us a glimpse of what was actually going through your mind uh, during that play. A lot of people, you know, they really wonder, you know, what was going on? You know, <laughs> what What were your thoughts?
1: <laughs> well, after uh, Buffalo scored, um, I was on sidelines just getting prepared for what we like to what we call the last three plays. It's essentially... Um, a succession of plays um, that you progress down the field, get yourself in position to either score, kick the field goal, whatever the situation is. And at that point we just needed a field goal. And so we're having that conversation and coach Jeff Fisher and Alan Lowry, our special teams coach, they come get me. And they were like, Hey, we're going to run home run throwback. We need you. We need you. And I'm like, cause at that time I didn't play special teams. I was starting on receiver in national football league only special teams. I was on was what we call the hands team. And they were up, so I was like, "Why are they calling my name?" And what happened was, uh, our number one kick returner Derek Mason he was out; he had he was concussed. The irony of all that was is that during that time he had he got his concussion. I was in the locker room getting an intravenous fluids because I was cramping up, and so I had to go get an IV in the third quarter uh, to finish the game. And his backup is Anthony Dorsett Jr who couldn't run because he was cramping up. So that's the irony of everything is what led me to be able to finish the game led the backup who would have been in that position to not be able to finish the game. And so logically they, they went to me because I returned kicks in college and things that nature and they knew me. Um, and the the setup of the play was for the play for the what we call a squib. I and mean, they put Frank, who also doesn't play special teams much, put him in the game to feel the ball, great hands. Um, but again, they blooped it up. The Christie bloops it up. And then the ball goes to Lorenzo Neal, who as great of a football player he is, he's one of the best, if not the best fullback fullback to ever play the game. I think he deserves being a Hall of Fame. But his hands, he didn't have the best hands in the world. So when that ball went into in the air and he he caught it, that was the blessing in itself because he, boy, his hands were 50-50. And he, uh, he caught it. He gave it to Frank. And Isaac Byrd, who also was in there with me in the back line of that re- kickoff return team, he was put in a position that was unfamiliar to him as well because of the injuries, and he got himself out of position. And instinctually, I, I saw what was going on. I stepped back, and Frank threw me the ball. Um, I learned some years later uh, that Lorenzo Neal and Frank had a conversation uh, right before the play where uh, Lorenzo said, hey, I'm going to get this ball. Come get it from me, and I'll block for you. So he kind of ordained it. He kind of knew he was getting the ball for whatever reason. And he he catches it, gave it to Frank. And like I said, instinctually, I I just saw I was the only guy there. and Or felt it. I should say I didn't necessarily see it. And the ball came my way. And I tell people over the years, I had the easiest job of all. I just had to run. I had to use my God gifts. And I could run long legs. And everybody else, they kind of did the job blocking for me. And I just ran. And. Um, I get a lot of credit because I had the ball at the end and I scored and, but man, them other guys, they did the work. Um, and I'm just, (laughs) I just, the benefactor of them and their practice time, they practiced it every day, all year long, or not every day, every Saturday, all year long for that moment. And it worked. It didn't go as designed, didn't go as planned. But that's life in itself, right? You you make adjustments on the fly, and you make the most of your situations, and that's kind of the story I've been telling people ever since.
0: Boy, that that play was really something to watch. I just remember everybody being up <laughs> and screaming. That was yeah. wild. that no. yeah. um, let's go back also to the Super Bowl thirty four appearance against oh, the yeah. St. Louis Rams, you know, with the Titans losing 23 to 16, you were, you know, tackled one yard short of the game time touchdown as time expired on the game clock. What type mm-hmm. of emotions a must you have had <laughs> going mm-hmm. from the Music City Miracle to being one yard, oh my gosh, short yeah. <laughs> in a game, you know, that meant so much to the Titans and their fans.
1: Well, that shows you the microcosm of life, right? You know, like, uh, the Missing Miracle is something didn't go as designed. I wasn't supposed to be part of, but yet it was successful. Um, the one-yard short play, I'm in the progression. It goes as designed, and I come up short. Um, and at that time, and still to this day, it's one of the hardest um, emotional moments I've ever had to deal with from a sports perspective. It's the hardest. That was the first time that I could remember in my athletic career from a little kid to that moment where i wasn't successful um i'm talking i've had the ball in my hand to win the game in basketball shooting free throws game winning soccer kicks game winning catches in football like that was the first time that i can remember and i keep trying to think of any other time and it hasn't been a lot but it's it's enough we got played play ball for 30 years um where i was not successful and i took that to heart i feel like i let not only a city down but my teammates down and by not getting in and it, you know, it was very stressed. I got these stress cankers. I had so many, when I went to the doctor, they would take this acid to quote unquote burn them to help them heal faster. And the doctor, Dr. McPherson at the time and his nurse and her name, I'm drawing a blank on, she felt so bad for me because they said we have never seen this many at one time ever. I had like 20 something stress blisters or canker sores from that um you know i came somewhat recluse for a little bit because i just feel like i was letting everybody down um and you know back then you don't talk about that kind of stuff but ultimately yeah i was you know living in isolation just for a little bit because i was so so like devastated that i didn't get it done and but then something flipped in me and i used it as motivation i had one of my best off seasons um from a training perspective i did some different things and I was ready to go for that next year. I wanted to get back to that moment and make make that up to the to my teammates, make that up to the city. And then I had a devastating injury that pretty much changed the trajectory of my life and my career from that point on. So it's just an interesting dynamic, and in, uh, of really, we're talking about uh an eight month time frame where my life pretty much changed in, in a lot of respects. Because you know, here I go from this this moment of you know heroism uh, to almost like a not I would say villain but uh, a goat if you will I I, did, I wasn't successful in the biggest moment biggest game of my life and to now I get to the season I'm having a pretty good season to that point and I get hurt in practice and then that pretty much changed the trajectory of my career from that point on so um it it's, it's a unique story in that because I I got so much of the the, that balancing uh, act of here's the good, here's the bad. And um, when I say bad, it's, I don't necessarily think it's bad. It's a lesson in all of it. And, and I try to utilize those lessons for myself, even, let alone with people. Um, but, you know, uh, it's just a, a, you know, a moment now that I can appreciate because I tell people this all the time. You know, um, the NFL is not made up of Hall of Famers. They're the ones we remember and we talk about. But the NFL is made up of role players. There's 1,500 spots every year, and of those 1,500, probably 5% of those are Hall of Famers, Uh, maybe 10% of the Hall of Famers. Um, And that's just how it is. But we talk about, we remember the Hall of Famers, and rightfully so because they've had great careers. But for me to still be relevant, still talking about it, still having moments in the NFL where people still remember me, still talk about my game and appreciate my time in the league, that's humbling and special because there's a lot of guys that I played with that played before me or playing after me that won't have that distinction. People won't remember them, won't know the contributions, and they will have had great careers and people won't even talk about them. And they helped the Hall of Famers become Hall of Famers. So it's something, I, you know, I don't mind talking about when people are like, oh, I don't want to talk about a Super Bowl. I'm like, why not? It happened. Right. It is what it is, you know, because yeah. I, I could have not right. been a part of that and not have the opportunity to talk about it. It's how I look at it.
0: Right. Absolutely. I mean, there's always going to be a winner and always going to be a a, a loser. You know, I have a daughter that does pageants. It's like they always say, everybody can't take home the sparkly hat. You know, it's like that's what it is, you know. And uh, so, you know, if we talk about that and then we fast forward to, you know, today, now you're a principal. I'm sure all that wonderful knowledge and insight that you gain from being a professional athlete, you know, definitely, uh, I'm sure, has an impact on your involvement with young people now. So what are uh, some of the things that you're able to convey to those young kids that you're working with in in high schools?
1: Well, I I think, here's a joke. And it is there's some seriousness to it. Uh, people tend to think I was born in 1998 um, because <laughs> that's when I was drafted. That's when I got here, and that's the most recent memories of memories is me playing ball, the Super Bowl, the Music Miracle, all that kind of stuff. But they don't understand where I, my journey and my journey wasn't as bad or as 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 trying as some other journeys. It was, you know, but it has its trials and tribulations too. And um, and those are the life lessons and things I'm able to convey. And I think people forget the fact that I wasn't always a professional athlete. And so, when I talk to kids in particular, I'm able to go back and say because they they nice kids now they weren't even thought of when I was playing ball. And their parents were watching me play, and they're the ones telling them about me. So now they're looking me up. And so again, that's the most recent. That's what they know about me as i'm a former professional athlete and things like that but they don't know i'm raised by a single mother my dad wasn't around all the different things that has helped mold me become who i am and i can and i can relate to that so if a kid comes in and he's like you don't get it my dad is in the am like what my dad was a drug addict and in jail too like you know what i mean like it's just so much if that i can relate to our, our two kids, and I tell kids all the time, there's probably nothing that you have been through or or witnessed that I haven't been a part of in my own family. You know, so there's a lot of different things that I can relate to, good or bad or indifferent. Um, so it allows me to be well rounded and and still be humble to say, yeah, I haven't forgot, man. I shoot, there was times when we were just eating cheese bread for dinner you know what i mean like i i was on that end of the economic spectrum too i went to the pros and i was going to five-star restaurants eating a hundred dollars a meal uh, a plate you know and that sort of thing you know so it's um and i i fall somewhere in the middle now and i you know so it's like i i think the uniqueness of myself is that i'm able to relate to either end of the spectrum and, and i love that that i can still go down to um a, a socially social economically challenged neighborhood. I don't hate to say say the hood, but go down there and still be relatable and but also bump elbows with those people that live in multi-million dollar homes as well. And I think that's 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 a balance that I hopefully I can continue to have and 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 and, and appreciate because, you know, not a lot of people have those life experiences that especially being in the roles that I am now.
0: Right, that certainly lets us know that your past certainly does not predicate your future. And so
1: you
0: have to really be thinking um, that those things that you may have had to experience, they actually do mold and shape you into the person that you are meant to be. And so um, when we talk too about uh, education, I know it is so different. Uh, Definitely than when I was growing up, um, I think it's changed because I, I know I went to a private all-girls high school, and they used to actually pull out the ruler and <laughs> hit your hands and whatnot. Uh-huh. I
1: mean,
0: it was like oh, I had
1: corporal yeah. punishment too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: you know, nowadays you can you can barely say anything to anybody, you know. Uh, yeah. But there's there's a lot happening, you know, in academia, and I wanted to to ask, um, I know there's been a lot of uh, conversation around what kids should be learning from a historical standpoint in African-American history, with some states even banning, yeah. you know, what students have access to in school. As an educator, what are your thoughts on that topic?
1: Oh, yeah, there's that's a whole other podcast in itself as well. Um,
0: we have a couple <laughs> of podcasts. We can do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, I so the, the I'll just start with this story, um, the the news that came out um, in Florida uh, with the scientist and his his changing of curriculum to emphasize that somehow uh, African and African Americans benefited from being enslaved, and mm. uh, I I told I had white friends texting me, emailing me, you know, I'm in education, black friends, and I told each of them the same thing I'm about to tell you. If that ever becomes the norm for the state of Tennessee, where I'm at now, you won't have to wonder if I'm going, when I'm leaving. I cannot sit there as a leader and tell my teachers, you have to, that's part of the curriculum. You have to teach that when I just, I there's a lot of things I disagree with in education. There's some things I do agree with. There's a lot that I disagree with and that's enough in itself. Cause you know, we do this high stakes testing and I don't think that test that tells you everything you need to know about kid. I didn't test. Well, Uh, I was, I had issues with testing, testing anxiety and things of that nature. And if that was, if I was completely defined just by that, I wouldn't even be talking to you as Kevin or Dr. Kevin Dyson right now. Right. But that right there to sit there and say something to that effect and make educators have to teach that as part of the curriculum. You don't have to worry if I'm retiring, I'm out. I'm not doing that. And then I'll go be an advocate for, for the truth or for whatever else I could do from a different perspective as I'm um, with Bishop Stein and associates as far as speaking and, and things of that nature. You wouldn't have to worry what I'm going to talk about because that's going to be part of that conversation. (laughs) Most
0: definitely. (laughs) Well, and and another topic that I wanted to briefly touch on, I know we don't have that much time, but um, one thing that I think is happening really quickly that we're not really totally prepared for is AI, artificial Mm. intelligence education. Um, What do you see as, I mean, do you see it as uh, primarily positive? Negative, indifferent, just
1: curious. You know, I think if used right, it can be beneficial. I think it's a new way. Okay, so teachers, this is what I told my staff this year. We can no longer, for the most part, use old keys with new locks. Sometimes the old keys work because education and teaching and learning, there's some things that are timeless. But we are in a different day and age in education where you have to change how you get into the mind of a kid. So with that being said, the AI aspect of everything, we've already been dealing with it where kids have tried to write papers from using AI. And right. there's there's things to catch this from happening. And, of course, parents are trying to argue. He did not, blah, blah, blah. But we're like, okay, here's the proof and whatever. That's a whole nother concept, uh, conversation but i i think there is some value in it if you can kind of bring the two worlds in a sense together utilize like there's some graphic designing there's some some literature why there's some okay let's voice text this this concept for this passage and you write one that's comparative to what they wrote compared to what you wrote. There's some different ways you can do it because I don't know if you've ever used, it. I've used it a couple of times just recently just because people have been telling me to, and I'm like, okay, let me check this out. And sure enough, you're like, oh, wow, this is pretty impressive. It's, and it's literally in seconds. But yeah. if you don't fact check it or do your homework with it, which you end up doing a lot of the work anyway, you're going to be writing something that's not factual because it's just pulling information from all over that it doesn't necessarily have yet. So, yep, that
0: so true. Mm-hmm. yeah,
1: so there is some value in it, but it's gotta be harnessed the right way. And I'm interested to see where it goes, where education goes in the next five years as AI develops a bigger database, because that's going to be interesting because right now with everything technology and shortage of teaching teachers, it's only a matter of time before AI become the teacher in a lot of respects right, as we have right. online. Well, you're gonna have,
0: yeah, the humanoid <laughs> robots coming in and teaching the classes mm-hmm. and, you know, that's going to cut out some problems. But like you said, you know, the couple of times I've used it, I'm like, well, this is starting pretty darn good, but yeah. it's missing this, you know, it's missing a quote or it's missing something, you know, you yes. do have to check it, but yeah, they're going to be, um, I guess there's software platforms they're developing right now and have developed that can catch a paper that's been written using a i but uh, you know it's so funny um when i was uh having to take the graduate record examination to get into um you know the doctoral program i had to i had to take it again unfortunately because it ten years had lapsed or whatever but i I went in and I realized how different things are in in that they told me first of all, I had to take all of my belongings and put them in a locker. Then the next thing was I was padded down. Um, they checked my glasses to make sure there were no recording devices. Wow. I mean, I mean, I was like, this is crazy. Like, it is totally different. The the means and, and ways in which people can use some mm-hmm. of this technology, even, you know, having to put statements in, in the syllabus um, regarding um, whether you wish to be recorded or not. I mean, you know, those are things that back in the day, teachers didn't have to worry about all that or being recorded. And then it's on social media. And it's just so much. Oh, <laughs> like,
1: it's too much.
0: Yeah, it's way too much. <laughs> uh It's like you're doing too much. Yeah. <laughs> <Like, laughs> Got to come up with something here. I mean, you know, so yeah, I spent, um, I spent about 18 years in the classroom, uh, K through college. Um, Mm. You know, I've worked with every grade level (laughs) at this point. And um, I I see, I see a lot of hope. I see a lot of positive things as I'm sure you do. Um, But, you know, and, and it's something people have to do. I mean, you know, I think, people had a new healthy respect for teachers after COVID, <laughs> you know, I'm like, they have no idea, you know, what goes on in a day. So it's a lot, a lot happening there. But mm-hmm. I think um, one of the things uh, when we talk about education and being an athlete, it's obvious that every young man or woman will never play or, professional sports, if you will. And uh, right now, I think uh, I read that it's estimated that every one in 1,282 high school football players actually gets drafted. So obviously that means you better have some sort of succession plan as we've talked about. Um, When do you think parents need to actually start having that talk with their children?
1: In in regards to AI or... No, no, no. To... I'm
0: talking about in regards to, um, you know, being a professional athlete, oh. you know, like, well, you know, like it's it's so different. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the odds are still stacked against you, though.
1: Well, I, I think he, as early as when that becomes their, their dream, right? I think you have a, a candid conversation with them. I, I think you don't want to... Um, deter anybody from their dream but i think they have a, a candid conversation of the work that entails and being honest about the numbers and that's why i can appreciate what my mother did with me because you're not thinking beyond that small scope of i'm the best player in my area or my school or in my region compared to there is only eight to 10 schools in my district. And then there's eight to 10 schools in the district next to me, eight to 10 in the district next to that one. Oh, wait, we're only one section. There's 50 other states, there's 49 other states and that number of opportunities, lessons and lessons and lessons more. So being honest about and candid about that helps me because my work ethic was Probably a little bit different again. Like I said, my focus was on sport more so than it was academia, but um, and making them understand that if that's your dream, go after it, but you had to go after it wholeheartedly. You had to do what it takes. You can't be out partying, you can't be out doing some of these things, is going to deter you from the dream. Now, you can't have, I'm saying you, you can't go have a good time, but like I tell the kids now, I wasn't going to let anything deter me from my dream, I'm gonna have fun, but I was going to go too far left because. My dream was to play in the NBA that eventually became playing in the NFL. So whatever age that is, that that becomes their dream. That's when you have that conversation. And for me, it was like 11, 12 years old. And mm-hmm. my mom, she she went a route where she put the numbers in front of me. And, right. you know, it was it was disheartening and, and things. But it also was motivation because I wanted to be that one percenter and it ended up working out for me. Um, but I worked my tail off for it um along the way. But she wanted me to have that balance in life and I learned that lesson later. But I was doing it, but I didn't know why I was doing the quote unquote balance thing back then. I just knew my mom said I had to have have this to play, and that's what I was going to do. And I realized now that lesson is what has carried me to who I am today. It was Okay, that's your dream. You can go after it, but you gotta have balance in life because there's more there's other things to life than just quote unquote being a professional athlete or being the next biggest rapper in the world or whatever it may be that everybody, your ambitions are is, you know, you just don't know how you're gonna develop mentally. You don't know how you're gonna develop physically. You you know, by the time you're 19, 20 years old, you know, that your trajectory might change. You might have an injury. Now what? In what you think, you know?
0: So true. So true. Well, I'm looking at the clock. Unfortunately, I think we're right at about out of time. Uh, (laughs) But this has been wonderful. It went by so quickly. Uh, Just so wonderful words of wisdom that you've shared with us. And I really do appreciate that. Um, I'm so thankful to have you a part of uh, the Bishop Stein and Associate Speakers Bureau. Um, I know you're going to be talking uh, to corporations on uh, leading and leading with grit. And I am happy to report that if people would like you to speak at their next event, uh, they can reach you through the Speakers Bureau at wwwbsa. So we hope uh, to see you out there more sharing this wonderful message. I thank you so much again for joining us today. We'll be back with the Celeste Stein Show in two weeks on BBS Radio. Thanks for watching.